Hello, and welcome once again to the Deathcast. I am your host, best-selling independent author, Ian Todd, and I'd like to thank you for joining me as we continue to take our look at the Atlanta child murders of 1979 to 1981. Before we dive in, I have my normal plugs. Uh, if you'd like to follow me on social media, you can find me on Facebook and Instagram at Ian Totten Author. You can also find me on YouTube under Ian Totten Author. Now, every episode of this show goes up on there directly from one of the podcast sites that I am on. So if you're not into podcast apps and what have you, you can find me there. You can also find me on MeWe at Ian Totten Author. Uh, it's a much better site than a lot of other social media. There's not restrictions on really what you can post and can or cannot say. Uh, which I enjoy because I, when I post about these cases that I cover, I generally try and post uh, more than just pictures of the suspects or victims. I also try and post crime scene photos if those are available. And as you can imagine, some of them are quite brutal and graphic. And I don't post this to kind of do, you know, uh, slaughter porn, but I post them so people can get an idea of just how truly horrific uh, these murders are. Um, You know, they can kind of put the images to the words that I'm speaking and get an idea of what really went on. And that's something I've noticed over the last few years is a lot of, you know, people who suddenly have fallen into true crime because of things like, you know, the ID channel or making a murder and all that stuff. They seem to have this Hollywoodized notion of murder that doesn't mix with reality. And if nothing else with this show... I try not to pull any punches and try and show things as they actually were. i give you an example of that a couple months back when Netflix released their series on Richard Ramirez, The Night Stalker. A lot of people were up in arms over how graphic some of the content was. Well, my Self and some of my friends within the true crime community were stunned by this because it really wasn't very graphic. It didn't show anything. They didn't discuss anything that wasn't, you know, over the top or depict any pictures that were hyper-realistic. If you go and actually search for crime scene photos, you'll find you know, hundreds of images that are a thousand times worse than anything Netflix would dare put into a documentary. And that's the kind of stuff that I'm able to post over on MeWe, that's M-E-W-E. If you'd like to help support the show, you can find me on Patreon under Ian Totten, author, uh, at this point, uh, episodes are going up there before they go live on places like Podbean and Apple Podcasts. 
Alright, now that the plugs are out of the way, get yourself something to drink, sit back in a chair, kick back, relax, close your eyes. I have my coffee, I have my cigarettes. Let's go into the crypt. Okay, when we last left Atlanta, it was just after August 21st, 1980, when the body of 13-year-old Clifford Jones was found behind a dumpster. And we talked about how the Atlanta Police Department, as well as the mayor's office, was really starting to get some pressure put on them by various people in the community, as well as the local media. In fact, the entire world started to look towards Atlanta at this point, and a lot of people were wondering, you know, when or if they were going to catch the person or persons responsible for these murders. The Atlanta PD had started a multi- agency task force made up of members from the Atlanta Police Department and the police departments from the different counties in the area. But unfortunately, this task force really wasn't doing much. They weren't gaining a lot of traction as far as, you know, following leads that they were giving from eyewitness testimony or even going and speaking to the parents of the murdered victims. Uh, Coupled with this, there were a lot more names of children and youths who were murdered that never even reached the task force for some arbitrary reason. The task force would add certain names while excluding others, uh, and they were never able to fully give a reason why this was so. And I'm talking even up to present day, there are certain names of children and, uh, you know, younger people that died within this specific geographic area along Memorial Drive who just never made the list for, you know, one reason or another that, again, they've never, the Atlanta Police Department has never stated why the individuals didn't make the list other than giving you know arbitrary reasons you know of they didn't fit the pattern which at the time of the murders they said there was no pattern and even at trial of rain williams they were unable to prove any consistency of a pattern and and it really shows the ineptitude of the investigation and it's an ineptitude that has lingered with these cases to this very day. The next murder we are going to look at has never been put on the list again for reasons that the Atlanta Police Department have never fully explained, and that's the murder of Angela Bacon, who was known to friends as Gypsy. In the early morning hours of Sunday, August 24th, Gypsy and a friend of hers named Walter were walking home along Georgia Avenue when a 
a black man in a dented and beat-up station wagon pulled up beside them. Now, according to Walter, the man called out to him and said that he needed to come over to the car because he needed to talk to Walter. And according to Walter, the station wagon was either light blue or pale green. And the man asked if they wanted a ride home, to which Walter said no, he did not. And, you know, he explained they didn't take rides from strangers, at which point uh, the man rattled off a list of names asking if Walter knew any of them, to which he replied that he did not. Now, there were a couple of interesting things about this station wagon, one of which was Walter noticed that there was a pair of handcuffs hanging from the rearview mirror, but there was also a butcher knife stuffed through the sun visor on the driver's side of the car. The man apparently grew tired of talking to Walter, and he turned his attention to Gypsy, ordering the girl to get into the car with him. At this point, the man suddenly threw the car into gear and took off with Gypsy screaming for him to stop and let her out, which the man did a moment later, uh, and apparently Gypsy fell out of the car as he stopped, and the man drove backwards before driving forwards and running the young woman over. Uh, And apparently he hit her with such force that he threw Gypsy's body into the air. And he just kept going. And eventually the police would try and pin this murder on Walter because they said they could not find, you know, this supposed station wagon. Um, And to the best of my knowledge, her murder has never been solved. But I bring this up because this particular case, as well as a few others, is one of those that was never added to the official, you know, Georgia missing and murdered list. Uh, Yet, it is in the specific geographic location where a lot of the abductions and murders took place. Towards the end of October, a young man by the name of Kenny Brown uh, left his house in the middle of the night to go to a cousin's house because the cousin had a fan inside the house and he was hoping that it would help to break the stifling heat and allow him to sleep. Uh, And as Kenny recounted it to the police later, he was walking uh, down 1st Street towards Memorial Drive when he heard a child screaming out, Mama, Mama, help me. So he dove behind some bushes to hide, and what he witnessed was a car, either pale green or light blue, stopped in the middle of the road. Um... And shortly after this, you know, he's hearing these, this screaming, the man who was in the car open fired on the child that was inside with him before speeding away. And Kenny ran back to his house 
and told his grandfather what had happened. Um, to which his grandfather said, you know, don't you tell anybody about this. Um, you keep walking these streets at night, you're going to end up in the back of somebody's car. And I bring this up because later another young boy would go missing from the area, and it prompted Kenny to come forward to the police with his story. And once again, instead of, you know, taking what the young man said at face value, the police would try and finger him for the crime. And if I'm not mistaken, Kenny actually ended up going to prison for the murder of the child who had gone missing when he prom- when he decided to come forward. And this is indicative of, you know, the tact that the task force in the Atlanta Police Department would take throughout this case, which is... When somebody came forward with information, they would either completely ignore them or turn the tables on them and try and convict that individual of the crime that they were reporting. All while, you know, ignoring the information that had been provided to them, which may have led to the arrest of the perpetrators. Moving along in our timeline, Friday, September 19th, 1980, another child was reported as missing in Atlanta. This was 10-year-old Darren Glass, who had actually been missing since the previous Sunday, the 14th, although his parents had waited five days before reporting him to the police. Darren is one of the few children in this case whose body was never recovered, and it would be quite some time before he was officially added to the list of the missing and murdered children in Atlanta. Uh, One thing of note, however, is that Darren lived on Memorial Drive. And he was also a neighbor to Kenny Brown, who I spoke about a few minutes ago. Kenny was the boy who had heard the uh, young child in the back of a car being shot. October 9th of 1980, another child went missing. 12-year-old Charles Steffens, who disappeared the previous evening on the Eighth of note with Charles' disappearance is that he disappeared in the same geographic area as early Terrell had, which is over by the fairgrounds. Also, a, another child who lived in on the same street as Charles said that he witnessed a man emerge from between two buildings and speak speak with Charles. He also said that he saw this man the following day walking through the neighborhood after Charles's body had been discovered in front of a trailer park. Another individual had attempted to contact the police about information regarding Charles Steffens, but after contacting them from a local convenience store and waiting for an over an hour, the man left. 
The store clerk then contacted the FBI and gave them as much information as he could recall from the men. Stefan's body is one of the ones that they had, you know, used to link Wayne Williams to other bodies through fiber evidence. One fact about Charles, however, that is often overlooked and never brought up in any documentaries or anything else is that the patrol officer who was the first one on the scene had thrown a blanket over his body shortly after arriving, thus contaminating the body. Another boy gave evidence that Stephens had been meeting with an adult male for about two weeks every afternoon, barring weekends, at around four o'clock in the afternoon, and that at one point he had accompanied Stephens on one of these trips, uh, and that they had driven in a brown two-door car. He also stated that he would follow him at times and watch Stephens get into a red Ford LTD station wagon with wire rim wheels. Two important aspects of this is that the car, the red car matched one that Wayne Williams drove, except that it did not have wire-rimmed wheels, and the suspect that the boy described to the police did not match Wayne Williams in any way, shape, or form. This is important because at some point, Williams had lent this red car to a friend of his. So there is a possibility that Williams was actually involved in this murder, uh, although it can't be stated conclusively whether or not he did. Not long after this, another individual would go to the task force headquarters and would give a statement to police concerning a suspect in the murder of Charles Steffens. Uh, The police had this man pick the individual he was talking about from a lineup, and he did this easily. It was a photo lineup. Um, And the story he recounted was that on the night Charles Steffens disappeared, he had gone with the man to do a drug transaction. Uh, This guy was a drug addict. And while in this man's car, he saw a boy in the back seat lying down wrapped in a blanket, and it was obvious to the man that the child was A, not breathing, and B, not moving. He also stated that the car was a brown Lincoln with light brown or tan interior. Um... The suspect told the guy to forget about what he saw in the back of the car, and they went about their business. The next morning, the uh, the drug addict walked out to his car, and there was a note on it from the suspect telling him to call him urgently. Uh, the drug addict then contacted the police. Uh, it should be noted that he had a warrant out for his arrest at this time, and he gave this information 
despite the fact, and I even uh, contacted the police despite the fact that he had this warrant out for his arrest. He also stated that he had known the suspect since 1979 and that he had been buying cocaine from the man since that initial meeting. The man also recounted that the suspect had asked him about procuring young boys for him, offering 20 to $30 per child, as well as propositioning him for sex. He then repeated his story about what he had witnessed in the back of the suspect's car. Uh, of note, he changed his initial story slightly, saying that the initially he said the boy was wrapped in a sheet. This time he was wrapped in a pea green blanket. And when he questioned the man about the boy in the back seat, he was told, quote unquote, he's barbed out. Uh, that means he was, you know, high off his ass and that he did not need to worry about the boy. The witness also told police that he had seen people in, you know, barbed out condition before and that he did not believe the boy was in that condition and that it would have been a struggle for the boy to get out of the blanket. He also recounted that he had contacted police because he was scared after getting the note on his car and that the suspect had told him he procured boys from a local park. He went on to state that the suspect was what he called a chicken hawk, which is an older male who enjoys having sexual encounters with younger men or boys. The witness passed a polygraph test. At this point, the police learned that the suspect was involved in something of a child molestation ring, which involved other men. Uh, in the police reports, they refer to this as a homosexual ring. That is very unlikely, um, as it's obvious that this guy was a pedophile, and there is a large difference between someone who is gay and somebody who is into children. But back in the late 70s, early 1980s, they did not see any distinction between the two. Uh, the police did a lot of checking, and everything that the original witness, as well as a police informant, told them checked out and jibed with each other. But unfortunately, as a lot of times in these cases, the police didn't do anything with the information. Um, Charles Steffens, as I stated, was one of the ten cases that was used to try to establish a fiber pattern between Wayne Williams and the dead boys. Um, I have to wonder if they had followed this, you know, would they have been led by back to David Wilcoxon and his friends and if you know the murders that were to come might not have been avoided unfortunately this suspect's name has never been publicly released not long after this the second body that had been found on Nisky Lake Road 
remember this is the first two murder victims. Well, it was identified as belonging to Alfred Evans. And there's a whole lot of inconsistencies as to how this happened. Originally, the story was that they had compared the body to dental charts for Alfred Evans and that it was not Alfred Evans. And then they came out at this point and said, oh, they had not actually compared them to dental charts back then. Um... But they had found the right dental charts and that it, this was, in fact, Alfred Evans. Um, whether or which version of this is actually true is left up to the individual. I personally believe that they had never obtained the dental charts to begin with and did not do so when they verified who the body was. I think that they just reasoned that this has to be Alfred Evans, we need to come up with a plausible explanation as to why it took so long to identify him. Couple other things that are of interest is initially the cause of death for Alfred Evans was listed on unknown. Fifteen months later, they changed that to strangulation before changing it to probable asphyxia, probable strangulation. The death certificate was never released, with the statement being that a death certificate does not have to be provided for a body found a year after the death. However, Evans was found in 1979, therefore... By their own laws in Atlanta at the time, a death certificate should have been issued, but they chose not to do this, probably to cover up their own mistakes. Uh, eventually, again, the narrative was changed, and Evans's death was ruled unknown. In... October, specifically the 13th of 1980, a boiler exploded in the Bowen Homes Daycare Center, killing four children as well as a teacher. Um, although numerous witnesses came forward after this, stating that the explosion was caused by a group of white men they saw driving away from the daycare center, um, with others stating that they had an experience with bombs and explosives from being in the military, and that it was obvious to anyone that had the eyes to see it that the explosion was the result of uh, an explosive being placed inside the building. This um, episode really marked a turning point in the Atlanta child murders as the officials were very quick to rule that the explosion was caused by faulty maintenance on a boiler and the mayor, Maynard Jackson, uh, publicly stated that, you, you know... No one was involved in this thing. It was 
you know, error on the part of the maintenance personnel that allowed this boiler to explode. There was fallout from the boiler explosion. Uh, notably, immediately afterwards, the city of Atlanta instituted a curfew for boys 15 and under. This is notable because it only applied to the city of Atlanta proper. Remember, Atlanta is broken up into different counties. So children in these other counties did not have to follow this curfew. And the city very quickly declared that the curfew was a major success, despite the fact that a lot of people openly flaunted it and that the murders continued with at least 15 more victims being added to the official tally in the seven months following the institution of this curfew. The government, specifically Mayor Jackson, uh, would claim that the curfew was such a success that the killer or killers were forced to seek out older prey because the younger ones were no longer available for them. He neglected to take into account that the majority of the victims actually disappeared during daylight hours. They did not disappear at night. So what this was was all bluff and bluster uh, by the city in order to try and get the heat off of themselves. After the curfew was instituted, the government in this city began to raise the amount of the reward money uh, that was being offered to find the person responsible for the murders. I believe at one point, Muhammad Ali even stepped in and put up some astronomical amount, like $100,000 or something along those lines. At any rate, it was a significant sum of money. Uh, there's even a video out there of Mayor Jackson sitting at, in front of a table that is just covered with stacks and stacks of cash. No one knows what happened to this reward money. It's one of those things that's not talked about as so much of this case it isn't. Uh, it was never paid out to anybody. So where did all of this money go? Uh, I mean, they held fundraisers over this. Um, at one point, ha there was a fundraiser at the Omni in Atlanta where the uh, performers such as Frank Sinatra, Sammy Davis Jr., and others came down and put on a benefit concert to raise funds for this reward money. Money simply just disappeared. Is it possible that somebody in the government who was sitting behind a table full of money, you know, lined their pockets with it? Sure, it's possible. We have no way of knowing it because... Nothing was ever said about the reward money after Wayne Williams' conviction. Uh, you know, some estimates put the amount that was uh, raised through all this fundraising at over $5 million, which 
Mayor Jackson said would be put towards other uses. Again, never clarified what those other uses were. And, you know, at least for me, the way I look at it, it's, it's almost as though they used what was going on in the city to bilk people out of money for other things that they did not feel they were required to disclose. Um, you know, that's politics for you. You know, they're accountable to none. The next murder took place on November 1st of 1980 when nine-year-old Aaron Jackson disappeared. Aaron Jackson was a neighbor of Aaron White who disappeared on June 23rd. And initially, the police did not even consider the fact that the two might be linked, and I don't believe they still do, although both did eventually make the quote-unquote official list. If you remember, Aaron White was the child who supposedly jumped from a train trestle to his death, although police later did get their heads out of their asses and admit that this was a fallacy. At this point in the case, however, his death was still ruled a suicide. As for Aaron Jackson, uh, he was last seen at the Moreland Avenue Shopping Center. His body would be found fully clothed at the southeastern corner of the Forest Park Road Bridge. On November 30th of 1980, Patrick Patman Rogers, a 16-year-old who lived in the Thomasville Heights area of Atlanta, disappeared. The police stated initially that he was a runaway, and one of the things that they really didn't look into until later with his case is Patrick Rogers knew a lot of the victims of the Atlanta child murders. Just as a lot of the other victims knew one another. Um, I'm going to try and find a usable copy of the map that Chet Detlinger did up, which showed the actual pattern of these cases. Uh, but a lot of them, when they would happen, it would be, you know, within miles of each other. You know, sometimes a mile or less than a mile, where these kids would disappear and they all knew each other to some extent. Um, and it was able to be proven with Patrick Rogers that, you know, these relationships existed. Patrick Rogers would also be the first victim to be found in a river. He was, in fact, found in the Chattahoochee, on December 7th of 1980. As for the connections with Patman uh, Rogers, he knew both of the errands on the case. Um, and the police had said that he was a runaway when he first disappeared. And there is some speculation that he may in fact have run away 
but he was running away from the person who had done these killings because he figured out who it was that was responsible. Uh, again, this is just speculation. There's no evidence that Patrick Rogers actually knew who was responsible for these killings. As for Patrick's movements on the day and night of his disappearance, he's known to have taken his brother to a nearby bus station uh, around 7 o'clock before stopping at a friend's house to see if he was home. The reason that Rogers stopped at this friend's home was that he had finally found a music manager who was interested uh, in working with the two boys. This is important to note because Wayne Williams was a self-professed music manager. And the reason that I say this is important is because right around the time that Rogers disappeared, flyers began appearing in neighborhoods around Atlanta from a music manager who was looking to sign youths. He was looking to form a band similar to that of the Jackson 5. The individual who put out these flyers was Wayne Williams. And I'm going to get into my thoughts on, you know, Wayne Williams' actual connection to all these cases either in the next episode or the episode after that. But, you know, it should be noted that there was a possible connection to the disappearance of Patrick Rogers and Wayne Williams in this music manager. Williams also had connections with another victim uh, that was 14-year-old Alfred Evans. But that is somewhat getting off the track. Uh, The police statements were that uh, Patrick Rogers had vanished from the Moreland Avenue shopping center where another individual, Aaron Jackson, had disappeared as well as his friend Aaron Weich. And it's possible that they could have, you know, avoided further killings with Patrick Rogers, but Initially, police did not put him on their list of missing and murdered because he did not fall within the parameters that they had uh, set. That being that the children, you know, the oldest age of children was 14 and younger, uh, and Patrick was 16. To show you how disorganized the uh, investigation was, Patrick Rogers was added to the official victim count in 1981, early 1981. In February of 1981, after he had been buried, the police showed up at his mother's house looking for him as they had an arrest warrant for him. So, this is a pretty good indication of just how inept... Uh, the police were at information sharing that a boy who had been dead and buried for a few months was being actively looked for so that he could be arrested. The last thing we're going to look at this week (coughs) is the corner of Pickfair Avenue and Pickfair Way. 
this is a fairly important area of the overall story as a number of incidents happened either right at the corner of this or you know within easy walking distance of this intersection on january 20th 1981 a young black boy informed the atlanta police that someone had tried to kidnap him near the lakewood fairgrounds this is at the corner of pickfair avenue and pickfair way Nearby where this attempted abduction took place, uh, a block north, in fact, is where Charles Steffens had lived and disappeared. Three blocks to the east is where 11-year-old Earl Lee Terrell had gone missing. In August of 1980, a student at the Challenge School for the Boys told the school's director and Atlanta police that two black males had abducted him in a blue car at the Stewart Lakewood Shopping Center and taken him to a house at that intersection. Further of note, in March of 1980, a witness had said that he had seen a man in a blue car with then-missing 10-year-old Jeffrey Mathis near the intersection. In the first week of January 1981, 14-year-old Luby Jeter was last seen at the Stewart Lakewood Shopping Center. This is important as this shopping center is less than a mile from the intersection of Pickfair Avenue and Pickfair Way. Now, the day after the young black boy had stated that he had nearly been abducted at this corner, the body of a 22-year-old woman was found stabbed to death. Parked near where her body was found was a green car. This young woman, whose name was Faye Yearby, had been tied to a tree and her hands had been bound behind her, similar to the way that Angel Lanier had been found. The police did at least investigate this car, although they stopped looking into it when it was discovered that it belonged to Faye Yearby. And I think it's interesting that the police never really did a whole lot of investigation of this specific intersection as well as the shopping center nearby, despite the fact that on January 22nd, 1981, another child went missing. That was 15-year-old Terry Lorenzo Pugh. What's interesting to note with Pugh's disappearance is that he was friends with Luby Jeter, which means he lived in this same geographical area as where... Uh, all these other disappearances and murders took place. Interesting, too, is that a week before Terry Pugh disappeared, an anonymous caller had telephoned the new sheriff, Vic Davis of Rockdale County, stating that a body would be found on Sigmund Road in Rockdale County, although no body was found. This anonymous caller contact 
the police again, stating, you didn't find that one, so I'm going to lay another right on top of him for you. A few days after this, Terry Pugh's body was found on Sigmund Road. And according to police, his body was found within a mile of where they had conducted their search the week before. They also stated that the caller was a white man. Interesting, too, is that after Williams was convicted, a body was found on Sigmund Road, although it has never been connected to the murders in Atlanta. Interesting, too, with Terry Pugh's disappearance is the statement from his father that uh, a, an unidentified individual had warned him before his son's murder that Pugh needed to stop hanging around with the quote-unquote sissies at the college. This infers that Pugh was possibly hanging around with the homosexual population of the college uh, and may in fact have been selling himself to some of these individuals. Again, this is something that pops up over and over and over in these cases. Uh, one individual who made a lot of headlines around this time was a young man by the name of Lee Gooch, who disappeared, and police insisted that he was possibly a victim. Um, and they even put out that he was, you know, a victim of the killer. However, he was discovered hiding out down in Florida because he had charges against him. Last little piece of information I'm going to look at today is that the FBI had received some phone calls um, in December of 1980 and January of 1981, and they were able to trace these two payphones around the Stewart Lakewood Shopping Center. And also around this time, a boy said that two black men in a blue car had picked him up across the street from this shopping center. This boy was also friends with Jeter and Terry Pugh. Now, this boy testified differently at the trial of Wayne Williams. But the story he initially gave to police is that after leaving one of the boy's funerals, a car had pulled up alongside him and made him an offer for money and that he and another friend had gone with them to an apartment in Cobb County, which is west of Atlanta. According to this boy, there were three adults at the apartment, one of whom was a light-skinned, red-haired transvestite. And the reason this is important is that Lee Gooch stated that he was running from a light-skinned black man with red hair who was involved in the Atlanta murders, and he also stated that this individual lived in his neighborhood. The police eventually found the man who made this offer, because obviously you can guess what these men did with the boys, um, and had him turn informant. 
not long after turning informant, the police were notified that the transvestite had gone missing. Well, lo and behold, a transvestite was found dead in Cobb County from an apparent overdose. But the trail of all of this seems to have gone cold. In fact, um, the information that Lee Gooch gave to police after he was returned to Atlanta from Tallahassee, Florida, really was never uh, followed up on, despite the fact that Gooch publicly stated to police that he was running from this transvestite who lived in his neighborhood and that one of his neighbors knew exactly who it was who was responsible for the child disappearances but was too afraid to come forward. You would think that with that kind of information, the police would have acted upon it, but they didn't. Granted, we do have to take some of Gooch's statements with a grain of salt because he was on the run from the police also because he had pending charges related to Grand Theft Auto after he had stolen a car from a local newspaper. I just find it interesting and too coincidental uh, the statements he gave uh, coincided with... uh, statements given by a young boy whose name was never released and then the police actually found some of these individuals um again this further feeds into my theory that i again i will be covering in full in a later episode that is it for the death cast this week i would like to thank you for joining me again in this deep dive into the Atlanta child murders. Uh, I hope you're enjoying it. And if you're interested in where I'm getting a lot of my sources on this, it's from a book by uh, Chet Detlinger that came out in, I believe it was 1983, called The List. It is out of print and very expensive to get a physical copy of. However, you can get PDF versions of it off of the internet, and I found this book uh, through private investigator Ed Opperman, who also has his own podcast that's been going on for a number of years called The Opperman Report. Uh, some of, A lot of the information I get on these cases, I get from guests he's had on this show and I follow their leads on my own, and if it's something that seems absolutely implausible, I do leave it alone, because some of the things on his show, eh, they're questionable. Um, There's a lot on there about the whole satanic panic of the 1980s and 1990s, and he does believe a lot of that stuff, while I myself do not. Uh, But there is a lot in his on his show that is truthful um so if you're looking for something to listen to you know you want to dive down some rabbit holes or even just listen to some conspiracy theories that uh are unbelievable uh i recommend that 
that is all. Until next week, stay morbid.